this morning we are doing a, a pastor swap. Uh, I don't know if you're aware, but there's actually another church that's worshiping in the gymnasium over at Zion Christian Academy. It's called Covenant Grace. It is a confessional Baptist church, and its pastor is a guy by the name of Patrick Crandall, who happens to be standing to my left right now. I just met Patrick. I've heard about Patrick for, well, really the entire time that I've been here, and this morning I finally got to meet him face to face, and we look forward to sitting under your teaching and hearing what the Lord has for us this morning, brother. Bless us. Good morning, Zion. Thank you for having me. It is a real joy to be here and to be able to worship with you guys. Uh, I don't know many of you personally, uh, but I want you to know just what a blessing Zion has been to our church as we've gotten started. Um, it, seeing your heart for the gospel has been unbelievable, from letting us meet in your gym to helping me out with somebody who can preach when I can be gone, because when you're doing a church plant, there's, there's not a lot of that around. Um, and just the encouragement I've received from Paul and your elders as I've gotten to meet them, um, just unbelievably the way I've seen the heart of Christ through you guys and the way that you've encouraged us as we seek to come alongside what you guys have been doing for so many years and proclaim uh, the good news of Jesus Christ here into Columbia. So I just want to thank you. Uh, even if you have not met me or any of our people personally, you have been such a gift and such an encouragement on the way that you have prayed for us and the way that you have served us. And um, I pray for you regularly. Uh, I long to see Zion flourish. Uh, and when I, hear, when I meet somebody and I know they're coming here, I rejoice because I know that they are receiving Christ faithfully and consistently. So it's a joy to be here with you. This is actually the first Sunday I haven't been at the church plant since I started it. So I was nervously looking at my phone all morning, but nobody's been texting or calling me, so I assume they're going to survive. Uh, and I get to focus on uh, proclaiming Christ and sitting under his word with you this morning. Uh, and so let's do that. And if you would, if you'd open your copy of God's word to Matthew 11, we're going to be looking at some words from Jesus this morning. From Matthew 11, it's a fairly well-known and famous passage, but I think it's an easy one for us practically to lose sight of and to distort and to twist. Uh, and I know certainly in my life of following Christ, uh, I've constantly uh, had to come back to this and to remember this truth. So if, church, if you would stand with me and let's give attention to the reading of God's word this morning. Matthew 11, beginning in verse 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let me pray for us as we give in and ask for the Lord's help. Thank you, Lord, this morning for giving us your word. Thank you for calling us together as your people. Lord, you gather us together, not because you need anything from us, but because we need from you. Uh, and you are a good father who delights to give good gifts to his children. And so, uh, Lord, as we open your word, I pray that you would be with the one who preaches, Lord, that my weaknesses would only serve as a vehicle for you to show forth your strength and your power. Uh, Lord, I pray for each heart that is here, uh, Lord, that you would soften us to hear your word, to receive it, that you would bring conviction where conviction is needed, that you would bring comfort where comfort is needed. And Lord, that your word would not return void as you promise. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. 
Well, church, I have spent the vast majority of my life um, as a Christian, uh, following, seeking to follow Christ, and a great deal of my life now uh, in the vocation of, of helping other Christians to do the same. And in doing so, I have constantly seen how uh, this simple passage, because it's very simple on the surface and very sweet on the surface, uh, has so easily and consistently been forgotten or distorted, uh, both in my own life and in the life of others, and how that has led to so many struggles and difficulties um, that we do not need to have and that Christ calls us away from here. That seems a little bit odd because this passage, it seems so straightforward and it seems so good. If you're weary, come and I will give you rest. It almost seems like you don't have to preach it. We just say it and yes, amen, Lord, let's do that. But the truth is we often have a complicated relationship with the rest Jesus promises here. It is not as easy as it seems on the surface for us. Sometimes it seems too good to be true. The sufferings that we endure in this life get so heavy sometimes that the idea of having rest, it just seems, it seems fake. It seems like a myth. There's no rest in the midst of that weariness and heaviness. Or sometimes our sin seems so gross and so be so binding on us. We seem so pathetic and so weak that we must work endlessly to get better, or at least to cover up what's really going on inside of us, to have any shot of being accepted by people, let alone by Jesus Christ. So we struggle in that way. But other times we struggle in the opposite way. We don't even really want Jesus' offer of rest the way that he offers it here, the way that he promises here. We don't want to need it. We despise being weak. We want to feel strong. We don't want to need something from somebody else. We want to be enough in and of ourselves. So we resolve to be strong, to strive, to earn, to accomplish. We will be okay. We will make ourselves okay as we grab our bootstraps and pull ourselves up. This passage is a call away from both self-righteous trust in ourselves and the despair and fear that can spark in us as we go through a life full of sin and suffering. It is a call to look away from ourselves and instead to look to Christ for freedom, life, and rest. So let's get into that this morning. And to start, we need to talk about what Jesus means when he talks about those who are weary in laboring under heavy burdens. What does it mean to be heavy laden in the way that Jesus is using it here? Who's he talking to when he calls those who are weary and laboring under a heavy load? Is he talking to people who didn't get a good night's sleep last night? I have little kids, so I know that very well. Right? Is that who this is for, right? The ones who've been woken up all night or... Aches and pains keep them tossing and turning. What is this weariness, this heavy load that Jesus speaks of? Well, this call is not to those who had a hard night or a long day. It is a call to all of us. The weariness that Jesus speaks of is much more than just the fatigue of life. It's a much deeper tired than the one you feel at the end of the day. He's talking about the weariness of carrying the load of sin. The weariness of carrying the load of sin. Whether we feel it in the moment or not, 
Each of us is, is, bone, is born bone-weary from trying to carry a load that is, in fact, crushing us. We can't even get it off the ground. You see, we were created to be righteous. This is what God designed us for. He created us to live in him in a certain way. And that ray is what we call righteous, right? This is the way that we are called to respond to him, to respond to what he calls us to do. We are supposed to live in accord with what he demands as our creator. And that call had an accompanying promise. If you live in this way, you will receive life and rest. The problem is that we did not live that way. In the garden, Adam failed to do that. And since that fall, we aren't righteous nor can we be in any efforts of our own. By nature, we do not love righteousness. We love sin. Titus, in Titus, Paul talks about how in, by nature, we, uh, we are slaves to passions and desires that go against the will of God. He talks about how we hate each other and are hated by one another. In Ephesians, he talks about how we are dead in our sin. So by nature, we love sin. We love rebellion. We do not love the things of God, but we still have this sense in us because we were created in his image that we need righteousness. We still know we need it. And it's not just religious people who read the Bible who know they need it. Everybody knows this by, being, by virtue of being an image bearer of God. Everyone has some sense that they are not all right in and of themselves and they need something in order to be okay. Jonathan Haidt is a moral psychologist, and he wrote a book, really, about this idea. He's not a Christian, but he wrote about this idea in a secular way, and he said, an obsession with righteousness is the normal human condition. This is a guy who's not looking at the Bible. He's just looking at the way people live. We all have this sense that there is something that we need, that we need to produce, to be okay, to be all right, and we are spending our lives looking for this thing that will give us peace. That will allow us to stop striving and to know that we are okay. And of course, having the benefit of God's revelation, we get clarity on what this, what this is. And it comes very clearly from Jesus earlier in Matthew. In Matthew 5, he says, as he's been explaining the law and describing what its full requirements are, he concludes by saying, you therefore must be perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. This righteousness that we were created to live in, that is required of us by God to enter into life and rest, is not simply to be better than you were yesterday, or to be better than the person next to you, or to be good enough in society's eyes to be considered a good person. That's not it. It is so much more than that. This is why we are heavy laden. The burden is perfect, perpetual obedience to all that God requires of us. Nothing less than that will lead us to rest in true life. There's no heavier load we could possibly imagine to live under than that burden. So faced with that load, that load, the requirement of perfect righteousness, what do we do? What do we do with that? Well, our initial reaction is to try to carry the load. This load is on my back, so I've got to try to move it. And the pride we all have as sinners resents the idea that we can't do it and that we would need help from outside. We want to do what needs to be done. We want to make ourselves okay. 
We want the, and we want the satisfaction of knowing that we did it. We want to be able to hold on to that of like, I did it. I fixed myself. I made myself okay. We crave that. So we get to work, right? And we start working and we try hard to make ourselves right. The problem is that that work doesn't work. It doesn't work. The bar of perfection, the bar of God's perfect righteousness is too high. The load is too heavy. As Paul described in Romans 7, we do the things we don't want to do and we find ourselves completely unable to do what we know to be good. If the goodness we manage, and even the goodness we manage to do is marred by selfishness and ulterior motives. So what do we do when we see this? Now, the natural reaction is just to move the target. Before I was a pastor, I was in the military, and one of the things that we did was we did training exercises with other nations' militaries. And I was working with one, and we were working on uh, marksmanship, and it wasn't very good the first day. Uh, and so we came out the next day to do training, and sometime between when we ended and we started the next day, the targets had changed. And the target we were supposed to be hitting had grown significantly and, and moved to happen, and it happened to encompass all the shots that were missed the day before, right? Which is, you know, obviously that's funny, and we know that it didn't make them any better shots than they were the day before, right? But this is what we try to do. This is what the world tries to do. We constantly try to take the standard of what is required of us. When we know, when we know that we are not good enough, then we try to change the requirement and tailor it down to fit all our failures and weaknesses within it. We take that standard of God's perfect holiness and we relativize it. We have to bring it down and make it into something that we are able to attain. This is why the moral standards in our world change and shift all the time. They're always going to do this because that, that need for righteousness is always there and we can never hit it. So you constantly have to move the goalposts to try to be all right, to try to relieve the guilt and the weight of that. We have to shift the bar to something that accommodates our weakness and our failure. We redefine righteousness in all sorts of ways to try to make ourselves feel okay. If I'm, good, if I'm a good enough husband, if we're good enough parents, if I vote the right way, if I support the right causes, if I have the right house, if I have the right friends, if I accomplish enough work, if I have enough respect, enough money, if I'm better than my neighbor, maybe that will make me all right. Maybe that will be enough. We grasp at thing after thing, trying to find something that we can hold on to, something we can point to and say, I know I'm okay because I did this. And it is never, never enough. Some of these things are well and good in their own way, but not one of them will relieve the burden of God's demand for righteousness. None of them are something you can take before God and say, see, I've done it. See, I've done enough. I can stand on this before you. None of them can provide a perfect righteousness. And if you try, if you try to find this rest through your doing, you will chase thing after thing after thing in hopes that it will work. You will run and you will run and you will run and you will never arrive. Why do we do this, right? Why would we do this? 
Well, it appeals because we don't have to admit that we're weary. We don't have to admit our complete inability to be enough. You don't have to own the fact that you are a failure and that there is nothing good in you when it comes to pleasing God. As sinners, we are willing to work ourselves to death for the sake of our pride. And Jesus' call here in this passage is a call away from that. It is a call to recognize our inability, to realize that what is required of us to enter into life, to have rest, is so far beyond us, and to come to him instead. It's interesting that this promise of rest is it's a promise to the weak and the weary only. This is not a promise to the strong. This is not a promise to the competent. This is a promise to those who know that they are insufficient, that they are not enough, that they need something outside of themselves to relieve this burden. We don't get to come to Jesus strong. A great example of this is the narrative we have in the Gospels of the rich young ruler. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'll remind you of it. Uh, the rich young ruler comes to Jesus. He asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's a good question. A question we all should ask. And Jesus says, well, you know what you need to do. Keep the commandments, right? Be righteous. Your answer. And the rich young ruler says, I've done it. This this is working out great. Perfect. I've done that. All right. Where do we sign the papers? That's is good. I've done it. And what Jesus knows in that moment is that this man has, he's relativized the law of God, right? He has contorted the law of God to accommodate all his failures, all his weaknesses to the point where he feels like he has achieved the righteousness that God demands. And Jesus loves him, we read, right? In that place, he loves him. He sees a guy who's trusting in his own righteousness and thinks he has done it, and Jesus is heartbroken for him because he knows where that leads. And so Jesus graciously crushes him, right? He knows the man's heart, and so what does he bring up? He brings up the things that he loves, the things that he treasures. He applies God's law in a particular way that he knows will devastate this man, right? So he says, oh, well, then sell all you have and give to the poor, right? Have you, have you done that? And he can't. He can't do it, right? And in doing so, what Jesus is trying to say, it's not that if that man had sold everything he did and given to the poor, he would now be saved. What Jesus is doing is, is exposing this man's imperfection, you have not fully kept the law of God, and you don't. You are not sufficient on your own. And he leaves in sorrow. And in, in hindsight, after he goes, the disciples are watching this, and they're left in wonder. They're like, well, I mean, who then can be saved? Their, their theology connected prosperity with righteousness. And so when they saw a rich man who kept all the commands, and Jesus says, this guy can't enter the kingdom of heaven, they're like, well... What chance do I have? I'm a fisherman. I'm a tax collector. If this guy can't get in, how, what chances do I have? And then Jesus tells them, what is impossible for man is possible with God. What is impossible for man is impossible. It is possible for God. And that's not just a generic statement, right, that man can't do much and God can do a lot. That's a very specific pointed thing, right? What man cannot do, what man cannot do, cannot be righteous, God can do, which is why Jesus took on flesh. He took on flesh to come and to be righteous for us, to do the thing that we cannot do and to make it possible. 
But church, your work, your striving, your strength, all the things you want to run to to try to be okay, to try to feel that you are enough, those things do not get you into God's good graces. If anything, when you try to use them that way, they are the actually the thing that keeps you away from it because it keeps you depending on yourself. It keeps you looking at yourself rather than looking to Christ, the one who provides what you need. Church, the first and primary purpose of God's law for us as fallen people is to break the impulse to trust in ourselves, to leave us absolutely certain beyond a shadow of a doubt that we cannot do this. And that if we are going to have a righteousness, by God's definition, it is going to come from outside of us in the person and work of Jesus. It is not to show us how to fix ourselves to make sure but to make sure that we know that we cannot do it. We cannot do it. Now, I'm sure some of you in this room are very well aware of this. You're like, I, I know. Right? I live with myself, right? And life is hard. And I know my failings. I know my weaknesses. And I am crushed under them right now. I don't have any delusions like the rich young ruler did. I'm not coming to Jesus and saying, I've done it all. My struggle is something different. You hear weary and heavy laden, and you're like, yes. Jesus is reading my mail. That is me. And though I don't know many of you personally, I know we share a world that Paul describes as groaning under the corruption of sin. Right? It is broken. Things do not work right here. And we feel that all the time in so many ways in our life. I preached a series on Ecclesiastes a few months ago, and that's what Ecclesiastes is all about, how this world does not work the way that it's supposed to. And when you put your hope in it, it will devastate you because it cannot deliver. We all experience the sufferings of a sin-cursed world, and it sucks the life out of us. It's exhausting. But even heavier than that is that we know what we've done. Right? It's one thing to, to experience the effects of sin out in the world. It's another thing to know your heart. To know what you've done, what you've said, what you've thought, what's driven you in your decisions. And to know how not pretty that is. Right? To know how, many, how much selfishness is wrought, tied up in everything you do. Even the stuff that looks great on the outside. Right? You know better than anybody else just the depth of your sinfulness. And if your eyes are open and you see it, it is a terrifying thing to see that and to realize just how, how easy rebellion to God is for us. As Paul said, you do the things you don't want to do and you avoid the things that are good. You feel dirty, guilty, ashamed, like a failure. And in light of that, rest seems like something that's for other people, people whose lives are more together, people who aren't suffering the same way you are, people who are stronger, who fight temptation better, who perform better, whose families are not as messy as yours. That seems like who should get rest, not you. And if that rest comes from drawing near to Christ, perfect, holy Jesus Christ, it seems even more distant. Because right? how could somebody like you come to somebody like him? How could you get close to him? That's some of the beauty of Jesus' words here. Right, this is what makes them the best news. Because you, if that is you this morning, 
If that's how you sit in that pew, that's how you came this morning, these words are written directly for you. You are Jesus' perfect audience. You are precisely the person that this rest is for. You have the one qualification needed to come to Jesus to find rest, and that's to know your need of it and inability to get to it yourself. As bad as that may feel and as painful as it is to experience suffering and to know your own sin, it postures you to receive grace. And that grace is not found looking at ourselves, but to Jesus. And if you're like me, it's never harder to genuinely come to somebody, to move towards somebody in relationship than when you feel weak, flawed, or failed. When I've sinned against somebody and I have to come to them as a failure, it is absolutely terrifying. It's absolutely terrifying because I know I'm going to be rejected. I know that I'm going to be rejected. How could somebody love me when I have failed them this way? When they see this part of me, when they see how messed up I am, how I hate coming to somebody like that. It is terrifying. It's so hard to imagine that you could be loved when you are not lovable. Jesus knows we fear this. This fear of being rejected, if we are really known for all our weaknesses and failures. He knows that we would not and cannot come to him on our own in that state. We will not do it. So he only calls us to come to him in light of the fact that he has come to us. Right? You've got to see this in this passage. Right after he makes this call, what does he do? He describes himself. Right? He says that he is lowly and humble. He is lowly and humble. He's gentle. And this is such a fundamental reality of the Christian faith that makes Christianity so different from every other religion out there. Our faith is not a climbing up to God, but it's a belief and a trust in the fact that God came down to us because we could not climb. We could not ascend. We could not go up there. It was beyond us. So God came down to us. Jesus condescended by taking in flesh, and he came to us. He didn't wait for us to come to him, because that would not work. He comes to us. And this should be, we can't grow cold to this church. If you've been around for all, you know this, but we cannot grow cold. This is so surprising, because Jesus is the one person who should not do this, who doesn't need to do this. Right? Perhaps we might expect to find somebody understanding of our weaknesses if they are weak too. Right? And we kind of find some common ground in that. But Jesus is true God. He has perfect holiness and righteousness. If anyone would be justified in rejecting us in our current state, in despising us for being weak, it would be him. He has every right to do so. Yet he does not stand above us demanding that we be better. He comes to us to make us whole. He does not use his strength and his righteousness to look down on us and despise us. He uses it to come to us and to heal us and to give us life at the cost of his own. That's such a beautiful picture of the heart of our God revealed to us in Christ. I heard a story from a missionary that I thought illustrated this beautifully and described this condescension of Jesus in a wonderful way. He worked with uh, tribal people in Africa, and it was a small village. Uh, it was a place where water was very scarce, and so they had, uh, it was their most precious, precious, precious resource, and so they 
took great pains to guard it. So they had deep wells underground, and they built them in such a way that it was very hard to get in and out of, to the point where really only the strongest, most athletic members of the tribe could even do it, could even fetch the water. Uh, and that was to keep enemies from getting in there and, and stealing the water. But one day, one of the men who was tasked with this job, because uh, he was able, he fell and broke his leg at the bottom of the well. He was completely unable to climb out himself, let alone to bring up any water for the villagers. And so somebody ran and told the chief what had happened. And the chief came down to the well, and as he did, he took off the trappings of his position, right? his, his headdress, the things that marked him out as the leader, and showed his power and glory, and he set them aside. And as he did, he himself climbed down into the pit, put the man on his shoulders, carried him to the top, which is an impossible feat. Nobody else could do this. They thought the man was going to lay down and then die because carrying water was hard enough. Carrying a strong man out was beyond possible. The chief laid aside his glory, went down, carried the man up, and then went down and brought the water out for the people. And that's Jesus. That's what Jesus does for us. We are the one at the bottom of the well, completely incapable of attaining to life and rest in and of ourselves. And he veiled his glory and humanity and came and did everything that was needed to bring us to life and rest. His glory is shown in the fact that he does not despise our weakness, but uses his strength to meet us in it and to bring us through. Listen to how Paul puts it in Philippians 2, 3 through 8. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You may despise your weakness and failure, but he does not despise you for it. He comes to pull you out of it. He calls you to come to him for rest, but only because he has already come down to you. His heart towards you is not dictated by how lovable you are, but by his own perfect love. And the beautiful thing about this church is that he is not just well-intentioned, right? How many times do you mean well and there's things that you just can't fix? I feel this all the time as a pastor. I watch my people go through things and I wish I, there's things I wish I could relieve and wish I could make better and I just can't. I'm limited. There's only so much we can do. And it's all well and good to have good intentions for people, right? If that chief had wanted to save that man but he is unable to carry that load, to carry him to the top... It does that man practically no good. They would have both simply died in the bottom of the pit. So what I want to assure you, right, that this is not an empty promise that Christ makes. When he says, come to me and I will give you rest, this is not a sentimental thing where he feels bad for you and he just wants you to feel better. 
right? He is powerful to do this. He is able to give you the rest that you need, that you long for. And this is where we need to talk about the yoke of Jesus. In this passage, he talks about how his yoke is easy and his burden is light. He says that we should take his yoke upon him. You guys are familiar with a yoke? It's an old-fashioned piece of farm equipment, right, that you use to hook two, uh, two working animals together. So you could go from one ox power to two ox power or mule power. That's probably more fitting for where we are, right? You, know, you hook two of them together, and you got two guys pulling, working the same instrument, and you can accomplish so much more work. So the image here is that we are yoked together with Jesus. He's on one side, and we are on the other. And he calls this an easy yoke. It's important that we realize why it's easy. Right? We've already talked about the standard, the righteousness that is required of us. This is not easy, right? And Jesus nowhere in here is changing that standard. He's not moving that bar at all. If you go back to Matthew 5, he talks about this because he was accused of doing this. And he says, I tell you the truth, not a bit of the law, moral, God's moral requirements on you is going to pass away. I didn't come to abolish it. I came to fulfill it. Right? And that is what gives us a clue of why this yoke is easy and it's light. It's not because the standard has changed. It's not because there's no demand for righteousness on us anymore. It's because of the one who's doing the work. It's because the one who is doing the work. This is an easy yoke because Jesus is the one pulling all the weight. Jesus is the one pulling all of the weight. The weariness that we carry is, and the burden that we carry is the need for perfect righteousness. Jesus is the place in which it can be found. He is the only one who has produced a life of perfect righteousness. This is why he came into the world and took on flesh, was precisely to do what we could not, to obey where we disobeyed, to be faithful where we rebelled. Scripture talks about how we are united to Christ by faith. That's the picture of being yoked. We are joined to him so that we reap the benefits of all of his efforts. He is doing all the pulling, all the work, and we are riding his coattails. We get the blessing of all that he has won is now ours because we are tied to him. And he takes everything that we demerited by our unfaithfulness and our rebellion and carries that for us. What he produces, what he achieves is now ours as a gift of grace by mere faith, not through any accomplishment of our own. We cannot approve upon it. There is nothing that you can or need to add to the work of Jesus that would make it better. In fact, if you were to add any of yourself to the work of Jesus, you would corrupt it, not make it better. It is perfectly sufficient on its own. It is matchless and glorious and more than enough to carry you through the judgment seat of God and into life. So Jesus' promise here to you who are weak and weary and heavy laden is not an empty promise. He has already done all the work. He has already won that rest for you. He lived a perfect life of righteousness. That life is now attainable. It is not attainable within you, but outside of you, from him, joined to him by faith. And the penalty for all your sin and all your guilt was poured out on him at Calvary. Right? If you are united to him by faith, the full judgment and wrath for your sin has already been emptied, every drop of it. There's not a bit of it left for you. It was all absorbed by Christ, the perfect final sacrifice. 
And that work is done. There is nothing left to do. After Jesus finished this, he went and he sat at the right hand of God. His work is done. And you are safe and secure, joined to him by faith because of that. There's nothing left to be added. There's nothing left to be accomplished. He has done it all, and it cannot be improved upon. So church, I just want to tell you, first and foremost, that don't misunderstand this rest. Right? This is not a rest that fixes all your challenges now. We still sojourn in a world that is laboring under the curse of sin. And we still carry indwelling flesh with us. We suffer in a cursed world and we are still going to sin. But for all of that, in the midst of all of that, what has changed is that you are safe. You are safe. Your relief from suffering, your freedom from all the consequences and guilt of your sin is already secure. And there is not a hardship you go through in this life or a depth of sin that you can fall into that is, surpasses the work that Christ has finished on your behalf. This world will still be exhausting in a sense, right? We have not fully entered into the rest. Right now we live by promise. At that time when we will fully experience that rest, when all our suffering goes away and all the remaining flesh and sinful desires in us are stripped out, we long for that day. But that day is certain now. And so in the midst of life's up and downs, the suffering we have to walk through, that is what holds us, that certain hope that this rest is already secured. It is already ours, as if we were experiencing it in its full right now. This is a rest that's deeper than a feeling. Right? There are times when you may feel this and experience this deeply, and there are other times when you will feel like it's a myth. Like, how can I be going through so much? How can this rest be true? But the truth is, this rest is not a feeling. It's not feeling like you got a good night's sleep. This rest is an objective reality that you have been brought to peace with God, an irrevocable peace with God because of the work of Christ. It is an objective reality that does not change with your emotions and your whims and whatever we have to walk through in this life. When you are tired and you are anxious and you are sinful, this rest is still yours. You are forever at peace with God because of the work of Jesus, and he will bring you home. He will. That is real rest. So right now, church, we experience this rest as as promise. We're sojourners. We're aliens, right? This is part of the reason God's put us into a church, to carry each other's burdens, Right? To weep with those who weep, to rejoice with those who rejoice. You guys are God's means of grace to one another as you walk through this hard world and the difficulties of your remaining flesh. But we do it in light of the hope, the certain hope that final rest is coming. That's why this life here is by faith and not by sight. We are trusting that the rest that Christ has secured is certain. And as we look forward to that day when we experience it in full, when every vestige of sin is stripped away and there are no more tears, no more loss, no more crying, no more disappointments, when we dwell with this Savior whose heart for us is so much that he would come down and humble himself and be lowly of heart to save us. 
That is what we look forward to. That is where our eyes are fixed, church, as we endure the sufferings of this world together. What a glorious thing it is to realize that the most essential and precious thing that I have, the love and favor of God, is now, because of Christ, the one thing I can never lose. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for this incredible call of Jesus. And um, just to be reminded of our insufficiency, our weakness, our failure, but the total and complete sufficiency of Christ. And that you are a God who does not um, look at our sin and despise us, but, but decide to do something about it. Lord, we thank you for the perfect righteousness of Christ, that he would leave his throne above, that he would clothe himself in flesh, that he would come and live in this cursed world to provide the righteousness that we could not provide for ourselves. And Lord, at then at the end of that, to, to go to Calvary and to bear the full weight of the wrath that our sin deserves, not his, ours. Again, for what reason? To give us this rest. Lord, what a glorious gift. Lord, I pray that you would minister this to the hearts of your people this morning, that you would convince them deeply in their souls of what Christ has done with you, done for them, that you would lift their eyes away from themselves and to Christ, and that they would rejoice and their, their faith would be strengthened and deepened by seeing what he has done for them. Lord, I thank you for your care for us through your supper that you have instituted. And this is another means of grace. Not only do we get to hear your gospel preached, your finished work proclaimed in word, but we get to take it uh, physically as well in the bread and the wine. Uh, this is such a kindness for us because we are weak and we doubt and we struggle to remember these things and to trust these things. We are so quick to run back to ourselves. And we are thankful for how this meal uh, ministers to our hearts, nourishes our faith, and causes us to continue to look to Christ. So we pray that you would bless the elements as we receive your supper and that you would do with them what you promised to do, which is to nourish and sustain us until you bring us home. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.